What's up, everybody? This is Danny, and I'm back with another edition of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. Um, Man, a lot going on, a lot to talk about. So I'm going to dive right in and talk about the Oscars. So last week, I was here giving my predictions. I think I made some pretty solid predictions overall. Um, There were certainly some surprises, though, at the actual ceremony. Um, So let's talk about it. I guess let me just start with the elephant in the room, which is that, man, the Oscars really dropped the ball at the end of the show. The fact that the Oscars, you know, bucked tradition and instead of having the best picture category last, they did best picture third to last and then followed it with best leading actress and best leading actor. It was just such an ill-advised decision, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people are on a similar page. I mean, yes, if Chadwick Boseman had won for best actor and there was some sort of moving speech from his widow or whatever after, it would have been a nice moment. But to have the certainty that that would happen in a ceremony that's inherently uncertain and nothing is guaranteed and the producers don't even know ahead of time who is or is not going to win, to take that kind of risk is just so uh, foolish in so many ways. And it's, you know, the more I thought at first, I just thought, you know what? They made a mistake. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know what? It was sort of an inherently disrespectful tactic to take because, first of all, if it does, I mean, if it does go wrong like it did, then it just undercuts so much about the ceremony. It completely put Anthony Hopkins, who did win the award, in a terrible spot. And of course, from a TV production standpoint, it was the worst possible scenario because not only did Anthony Hopkins win uh, and not Chadwick Boseman, who they clearly expected, but Anthony Hopkins was not even present since he was essentially quarantined in his home in Wales across the world from Los Angeles. And... You know, the thing is, too, I mean, Anthony Hopkins, I talked about this last week, but he was so phenomenal in The Father. It really was, in my opinion, an all-time great performance from one of our all-time great actors. And putting him in the movie in that position where, I mean, they were already to some extent going to be a bit of a spoiler if they won over Chadwick Boseman. But to put that additional pressure being in the last spot and Anthony Hopkins not being there. And for whatever reason, too, it later came out that the producers wouldn't even let him give a speech over Zoom. Uh, I mean, it's just crazy that they set it up in that fashion. So they really, really blew it. And then not to mention that it took away sort of the big climactic moment from Nomadland, which, again, 
incredible movie. There's a great story behind it winning. You know, you had Chloe Zhao winning Best Director, a very historic win. Uh, you know, you had this movie that was mostly pretty universally beloved, I think. That um, was really, in my opinion, one of the great movies of the last several years. And it would have been a nice moment to end on all the people who worked on the movie coming up on the stage and accepting the award. And all of a sudden, they're relegated to sort of the mid-card uh, of the event. And why are you undermining that just for the sake of like kind of a cheap, you know, thing in terms of honoring someone who passed away? And I, trust me, I think they should have honored Chadwick Boseman. And, you know, there's a whole other conversation about why was the in memoriam section so rushed through and why wasn't there more of a why weren't there more video tributes to to certain key people and i think it would have been nice to do something specifically for chadwick boseman in tribute but you know part of the problem is you can't conflate everything on one hand you have sort of the obligation i think to honor one of the great actors who tragically died really in the prime of his life and in Chadwick Boseman. Separate from that, you happen to have a movie that he was in, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, that was his last role and that he was great in and was nominated for deservedly. But to conflate all of it together is a mistake because it's unfair to that movie to put that level of pressure on it to win. It's unfair to the other movies that are competing against it. Um, so it's not, I don't think that Chadwick Boseman's nomination for Ma Rainey should have been some kind of referendum on his entire legacy and sort of the one venue by which the Academy was, was going to honor him. It just totally skews everything in a weird and awkward direction for the ceremony. And again, it ends up, it ended up the way they, they presented it, it took away from uh, you know the other nominees and it took away from the other like the best picture winner in Nomad Land, for example. So really poor judgment there on the part of the Oscars. Um and, you know, I was listening to the Collider for Your Consideration FYC podcast, which I'm a, you know, I'm a fan of. And, uh, you know, Perry Nemiroff on there had, a, kind of, had some similar points. And, you know, I always really like what she has to say about these kinds of things. And, you know, she, she was getting me almost riled up because she was talking about how, you know, we've had this pattern now of the Oscars kind of blowing it year after year for the last several years, you know, everything from uh, poor representation of uh, minorities and people of color in the nominations, which is obviously a huge, huge issue that has gotten a little bit better, but is still an issue in some ways um, to just the actual presentation of the award which is more specifically what we're talking about here. But, you know, we had the Moonlight debacle from a couple of years ago 
uh, with Moonlight and La La Land getting confused for, for the winner. We've had numerous instances of people presenting awards who probably were not the right people to present the awards. And even this year's Oscars, you know, to compound everything else that went wrong with that finale, the fact that you had Joaquin Phoenix presenting that award, that final award, uh, you know, just nothing against him per se, but he's probably not the right person to do it. He's not a natural presenter. Um, and then just, you know, you look at this year again and the overall tone of the Oscars was so strange. Um, I guess some people liked it, but to me, it was such an overly dour and serious and just kind of boring uh, presentation when especially I think they just misread the room to me where they were going in thinking like, oh, you know, there, it's been such a crazy year. We don't want to do anything to uh, like undermine that or, or make people think that we're treating it lightly. But I mean, look, it's the Oscars. It's not um, a political speech. So we're tuning into the Oscars. You know, of course, there's going to be some politics and things like that. But we're tuning in for escapism. We want, you know, a big show and we want entertainment. That's why we're watching. And we want something that's really at the end of the day about movies. Um. And so I think that's why most most people, you know, every year I look forward to the video packages and the montages and all those little moments that that make you remember why you love the movies. And it's not just for me. I mean, I'm a diehard movie fan, so it's not for me per se, but it's it's something where every year I enjoy it as a film fan because I know that the Oscars are reminding more casual movie viewers why they should love the movies. And it's sort of something, you know, it's something that is supposed to put the best face forward for the movie industry. And I don't think this year they did that at all. There was nothing to get you excited. There was no comedy for the most part. The one comedic segment with Glenn Close twerking was you know, one of the most awkward things I've seen in a while. Uh, so, you know, there's so many things they could have done. They could have had a host. They could have tried to have, you know, in the absence of being able to do everything live because of COVID, they could have really had some great video packages and, you know, uh, tributes to different people like a Chadwick Boseman that would have been really meaningful and, and uh, memorable. So, again, I think they blew it this year, and I think they've got to get some new people who are in charge of this TV show because, again, at the end of the day, it's just it's just a TV show. It's not the end-all, be-all. But it's disappointing because it is a night, in my opinion, that is sort of advocating for the movies, and it's it's it should be getting people hyped. And, you know, it's so funny because... I look at in the video game world that, you know, in the last couple of years, the game awards have really become a big thing. And I think it's one of those things that at first, a lot of people didn't really take seriously. Um, 
but you look at those awards and they do they're they're doing a better and better job every year of really getting fans invested in who wins you know using it as a way to hype up new trailers and first looks at upcoming games and they do a good job of just advocating for the gaming industry excuse me the gaming industry and you look at the oscars and you're like why can't they do the same thing and it's funny they like very half-heartedly attempted it this year in a way where they debuted some trailers for uh you know west side story in, in the heights but i mean two trailers one of which was like barely a teaser there's got to be more that they that they can do than that um and you know the those movies are both cool but i mean you know you got to have something for everyone so i don't know i think there's a lot of room for improvement with the oscars and especially after this year um I really hope that they get their act together. But yeah, it was definitely one of the most cringy moments ever in any kind of live broadcast that I've seen, you know, that final segment for best actor. And man, again, I feel bad because I really, really like the father a lot. Um, I, uh, I think it was one of the best movies of the last year. Anthony Hopkins was amazing in it. And I have no issue at all with it getting rewarded for that. So it was just put in such a tough position. As far as other winners go, I mean, you know, I was really happy for Chloe Zhao, like I said, winning Best Director. Um, you know, the one that I sort of really jumped out of my seat for was uh yoon yajung for uh minari um winning for best actress in a supporting role i mean uh i really thought she deserved that one and and she just seems like such a cool person and her speech was fantastic best speech of the night for sure um so that was the one that really got me excited personally um, I was happy for a uh, promising young woman to win uh, best original screenplay. I thought that was a cool win for that movie and for Emerald Fennell. Um, I don't know if there was anything else that really stood out to me. It was definitely a surprise that the father won best adapted screenplay. I don't know if a lot of people had that on their, on their ballots uh, or in their predictions. But it was a great screenplay, so cannot begrudge it. Um, and yeah, I don't know if there were too many other huge surprises. I do want to watch some more of the documentary features. Uh, I'm definitely curious to watch the, uh, My Activist Teacher, which I have not yet seen. And... What else? Uh, I mean, Daniel Kaluuya, great, you know great in Judas and the Black Messiah. I was sort of rooting for Paul Racy just because I I thought he was so great in Sound of Metal. Um, but there were a lot of really good picks in that in that role. And, you know, I, I, uh, I know it was maybe a little controversial, but I was happy that Frances McDormand won for Nomadland for Best Leading Actress. To me, it was just an absolutely incredible 
performance. I don't think many other actresses could have done the same justice to that role that she did. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I feel like sometimes people don't, um, you know, have some kind of dislike for her, I guess. But to me, she's just one of the great actresses uh, that I've ever seen. And, you know, ever since I first saw Fargo, uh, I have just thought so highly of her. And I thought she just killed it in Nomadland. So I, I was happy that she won. I think she should have won uh, for that for that role. Um, so with that being said, um, you know, I, I did watch a couple things recently that I'm not going to do as picks of the week just because, to be honest, I had some mixed feelings about them. Uh, you know, I watched Mortal Kombat, and I'll just say this. Uh, you know, one of my favorite writers about movies is Film Crit Hulk. If you don't follow him on Twitter, you definitely should. Uh, I'm a longtime fan of his essays and reviews and thoughts about movies and, and TV. And he wrote a great essay about the, the new Mortal Kombat movie that really echoes a lot of what I think about it. And he articulates it better in his essay than I, I could. So I defer you to his essay for some really good thoughts about that movie. Um, and then, man, I, I feel like there's been so much discussion about the finale of Falcon and Winter Soldier. And look, I mean, I loved the show overall. I thought it just did a amazing job. And look, at the end of the day, it was, it was a great show. I think some things probably went wrong on the production side due to COVID or whatever. And the ending just, you know, undoubtedly felt very rushed. So, you know, I think there were some great moments in that final episode, particularly everything with Isaiah Bradley played by the great Carl Lumbly. Um, loved his whole arc, loved that character on the show and loved the way it ended for him. Um, but certainly some of the, the character arcs with John Walker, uh, as well as with sort of the, um, you know, Carly, who was sort of the main antagonist, felt felt pretty rushed and almost like you were missing some, some key scenes in there. Um, and then, you know, I, I, at the end of the day, I thought that the, the arc that was presented from the beginning as sort of the main arc of the show in, in many ways, which was the relationship between Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Sam Wilson and Bucky, it felt a little bit to me like it got the short shrift by the end of uh, the show where, I mean, obviously the focus shifted to the arc of Sam becoming Captain America, which was, you know, uh, you know, it's a very powerful thing to have Sam Wilson as Captain America, but it a little bit felt like it came at the expense of that relationship arc, which um, was, was from the beginning kind of a really important part of the show. So again, I won't get too more into it than that. Um, but look, at the end of the day, Marvel is doing some great stuff with their TV right now. I cannot wait for Loki 
uh, who who I think is is arguably my favorite MCU character, and Tom Hiddleston is so so great in that role. So I can't wait for that uh, in June. And I think that's about it for uh, before I get to my picks of the week. Um, but I will say my first pick of the week is going to be a little different this week. Um, you know, I've occasionally talked about my writing here on the podcast. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about it in my first pick of the week. So I hope you'll stay tuned if you're into writing or if you want to hear a little bit about that then check out my first pick of the week, which is coming up right after this. All right. So for my first pick of the week this week, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to talk about my own writing. So it's a pick of the week, but also very shameless uh, self-promotion. So I apologize. Uh, if you're not into that, feel free to tune out. But hopefully this will be interesting for people. Um, but I wanted to talk about a script that I wrote. Um, I actually wrote it originally a couple years ago called Alt-Alex. And part of the reason I'm bringing it up now is because I'm very excited. Uh, this Friday, April 30th, there will be a live uh, script reading or a virtual live script reading of the Alt-Alex pilot script um, as part of a program that Coverfly does uh, in conjunction with the Storytellers Conser uh, Conservatory. And basically, Coverfly, if you don't know, if you're a writer listening to this, you probably do know, but Coverfly is uh, a service that just in the last couple of years has really taken off and they've become kind of an aggregator of all the different script uh, contests that are out there. And so basically if you're applying or submitting your script for a, a, one of the big contests or even a smaller contest, um, the way to do it is through Coverfly because Coverfly sort of assigns you a score or a ranking based on every contest placement that you get, and it aggregates them. And so ultimately, um, your script kind of moves up the ladder and gets more visibility and attention, and attention, um, and is also then available all in one place. All your scripts are available in one place for you know, potential industry folks to come and find them who are looking for, for new material from up and coming writers. Um, so Coverfly has been great because it used to be, um, you know, a script contest are definitely a big part of the process. If you're an aspiring writer trying to break in, whether it's to be a TV writer or a feature writer or both. And you know, unfortunately, there's not a ton of concrete ways to break in as a writer. Everyone has very different paths. It's a very tough thing to break into. But contests are a good way to get your work out there. Um, you know, hopefully get some attention from industry people. And if you do well enough in them, 
uh, it can it can lead to things. Um, certainly, it's not uh, it's not a guarantee. There's a lot that uh, you know cannot just be gained from a contest alone. But it's one of many darts that you have to throw if you're an aspiring writer. And uh, if nothing else, it's a good way just to get a sense for, you know, is this script getting good response from people? Is it a worthy script? Is it one that I should really focus on in my efforts to, to get attention from, from industry people? And it's a good way just to give yourself deadlines to work towards. Um, so. A few years ago, so, you know, I had not had a lot of success with contests for the first, you know, several years I was in LA and I wasn't really writing with contests in mind per se. And I also didn't really know enough about which contest to enter, but I started paying attention when this one contest came along called ScreenCraft. And what I liked about ScreenCraft as a group was that they did a lot of genre contests. Uh, so they had like a sci-fi contest and a, you know, TV contest versus a feature contest, um, a horror contest, you know, and they seem to just really have their act together and just be a good, like very writer friendly place. Around that same time that I was starting to get into ScreenCraft, um, I was really, I'd written several scripts and, you know, a lot of the scripts that I had spent time on were more spec scripts, which are when you write an episode of an existing show. And the reason I was mostly doing spec scripts, this is, you know, like, uh, between when I first moved to LA in 2005. So like 2005, uh, you know, for several years after that. I was really focused more on spec scripts because I had always been told that if you were interested in TV writing in particular, the main thing to focus on was the TV fellowship programs that were put on by the different studios. So there's, you know, NBC writers on the verge. There's the Warner brothers writers program. Uh, ABC has one. And historically, all those programs require re required a spec script for an existing show. And at that point, I was a little more focused on comedy as well. So I did a Modern Family uh, spec script. I did a Goldberg's spec script. Um, and I was really focused on that. And the more I learned about it as the years went on, uh, you know, and I was able to talk to some people involved in some of the different programs, I just realized, I don't think it was clear to me at first how difficult it was to get into those programs. You know, I didn't realize that thousands and thousands of people apply and they take about, you know, four, five, six, seven people per year. So the odds of getting in are just astronomical. And the thing is, a spec script has such a limited shelf life you've got to really write a new one almost every year um, because that's just the nature of spec scripts. They become outdated. And part of the, the thing with spec scripts is 
people reading them want them to be current for current series, for newer series. And so focusing on spec scripts can really be taxing. And long term, it may not always be the best strategy because if you write a really good pilot or feature, you can use it over and over again to show to people. Um, and they don't have to have any prior knowledge of that show to get it either. Um, especially in the TV world we're in today and that even back in, you know, 2007, 2008, we were in, there were so many shows, your chances of showing someone the script who really was a fan of the show you were writing, uh, was not always great. And especially the kinds of stuff I was doing, uh, you know, there was sometimes a limited audience for it. So at some point I made a couple of shifts. I started getting away a little bit from straight comedy. I was interested in really trying my hand at something a little more serious and something kind of more sci-fi, more, um, you know, like sort of melding all my different interests into one script. And I think what was encouraging to me at a certain point was uh, there was starting to be a lot of shows, you know, for example, like The Flash on CW um, and sort of that whole Arrowverse. Um, and there were more and more shows that were of a certain tone that I had always really liked in the vein of things like Buffy or Chuck that were hour-long sci-fi genre shows but that would often have a lot of comedy and a lot of levity and a lot of banter and stuff like that. And so as that genre was becoming more popular, I was like, you know what? I could really write in that genre now and get away with it and get a good response more so than I could have five, six years ago. So I started really looking more at that genre and then I started thinking about, okay, what are some of the things I want to write about? And I, at the time, I remember I was sort of, I was a, a big fan of the Walking Dead TV show. But one thing that would sometimes bother me about that show was that it was, it could be very slow paced and it could be very, it would drag out its storylines. Um, and have a lot of like decompressed storylines that would stretch one story over several episodes, if not a full season. Um, and I, you know, was thinking about some other, you know, like comic books that I liked, for example, by Grant Morrison and, and others who their trademark was actually hyper compressed stories that would pack a ton of action and information and uh, would just be extremely fast paced and they would just come at you like a freight train. And I was like, man, I know that you can't exactly translate that to a TV, but I'd love to try my hand at a show that was a little more fast paced than what I was seeing in shows like The Walking Dead. Then I started thinking about, you know, I was a huge fan of the show Chuck. 
And I feel like that had sort of become a little bit of a, as much as I love Chuck, you know, we were, we saw a lot of shows in that era about kind of the nerdy guy who was in over his head and was tasked with saving the world or whatever. And it's a great trope, you know, I mean, as a nerdy guy, I totally love that genre and it, and it spoke to me, but I felt like there was this weird dichotomy of like, on one hand, you always had like the nerdy male character, but then the female character was always just super badass and, you know, super attractive and, um, you know, it was just sort of like this, it was never, it was never just like the nerdy girl next door, uh, female character who went on an, an adventure in the same way that like Chuck Bartowski did on Chuck. And I never got that because, you know, and you know, I, I would think about friends of mine who were, you know, female friends who were just like these kind of, you know, cool, but like nerdy or kind of awkward girls. And it's like, why didn't you ever see that kind of person on TV? Like, these are my friends. Why don't I ever see people like them on TV? And I was like, that would be really fun to play around with that and do kind of a female Chuck type of character, not in a cartoony way, but just in a way of someone who feels very relatable and very like someone I would be friends with. And so that was some of my thinking going into Alt Alex. And then the final thing was I was just on this kick. I mean, I've always loved stories about alternate universes, um, you know, from comic books, from sci-fi movies, uh, from I love the TV show Fringe, which is referenced in Alt Alex. Um and I've always been fascinated. Um, I, as a kid, I loved the show Sliders, uh, which dealt with parallel worlds. And so I always loved that stuff. And I also, for some reason, was getting down this rabbit hole of reading on Reddit and stuff, like this whole glitches in the Matrix forum that was all about, you know, people sharing quote unquote real life stories of weird things that had happened, you know, where one day they would walk into their house and the staircase was there that wasn't there before, or all of a sudden a door would be there that led to nowhere that they didn't understand why it was there. And I love reading that. I mean, you can go down some really crazy rabbit holes. And I was thinking about all those kinds of sci-fi ideas. Um, and it all kind of came together in this pilot, Alt Alex. And I don't know what it was, but something about writing this pilot just really clicked for me, where I felt like I'd written strong material before, but for this pilot, it just felt like I was putting everything of my own personality my own interests, my own sort of writing strengths into this pilot where, you know, I think part of it for me was I've always loved comedy, um, but I had never really written stuff before that stretched my additional interest in writing big, epic, 
world building types of stories. And I'd never really done that before. I'd written one pilot before Alt Alex called Millennials that uh, now has a very outdated title and sort of took a stab at these similar kinds of ideas, but it never fully, I would say it never fully came together in the way that I wanted. So that was sort of the test run was Millennials. And, you know, even with Millennials, I entered it into like one or two contests. It didn't do that well. And I kind of got discouraged. And at some point it might be interesting to go back to Millennials, but I, I pretty quickly put that one on the back burner because I was like, you know what? I can do better. And and that's where Alt Alex came from. And, and something just clicked. And as I was writing it, I could tell that like this was really working pretty well. And when I look at my own writing, I feel like I have sort of everything after Alt Alex and everything before. And all the stuff that I've written since, I think, is far stronger for the most part than everything that I wrote before. Um, so it's still one of the things that I'm proudest of, even after a couple years uh, you know, of writing other scripts. And I still really like the script. You know, I'll go back and read it and I'll be like, yeah, this really works. And even, you know, it's funny because like, I feel like sometimes you develop bad habits as a writer and I feel like there's probably like bad habits I've developed since writing it that I'll read that and be like, oh, I hadn't developed that bad habit yet. It's so it's very like, it has this feeling to me of like being this very pure script. Um, and so in any case, I, uh, I entered Alt Alex into ScreenCraft they're into their TV pilot contest called Pilot Launch. And lo and behold, it was a finalist. And that was definitely like the best contest placement I'd had to that point. And it was really exciting. And I was really encouraged by it. So I started entering it in more contests. And it goes to show, you know, there were some contests I entered it into where it literally didn't place at all. I put it up for an evaluation on the blacklist, which is notoriously kind of a tough, gives you tough um, evaluations and feedback. And it did not get great feedback from the blacklist. But undeterred, I entered it into another TV contest that I had started to hear about um, from a group called Stage 32. And... I, you know, it was one of those things where I, you know, it got into the quarterfinals and all these contests for the most part do it this way where it's like, all right, here's the quarterfinalists. Somehow I got in. Then a month later, the semifinalists, somehow I got in. A month after that, the finalists, shockingly, I got in. And I was like, there's no way I could win this. There's no possible way. And then somehow, like another month after that, I, I won the contest, the Stage 32 TV contest. I couldn't believe it. I was just on cloud nine. And um, it was very exciting because Stage 32, to their credit, they, you know, as since I won the contest, they tried to do a lot for me. 
they connected me with a very established TV writer named Mickey Fisher, who was sort of uh, assigned to be my mentor. And he was and is uh, great. He's one of the best people I've ever talked to in terms of getting great TV advice and career advice from, uh, writing advice as well. And so that was a great thing to come out of that contest win, to have him as a mentor. Um, and then they, but, you know, I mean, so even that said, I, you know, I won the contest and I was like, okay, this, this is it. I'm a TV writer now. Um, but what I learned was that that was very wishful thinking because the other thing that they did was they sent me on these different meetings with managers and uh, producers. And in my mind, I was like, well, again, this is it. Um, but the reality was a lot of those meetings tend to be more like courtesy meetings. Um, you know, they, it's, it's sort of like dating where you meet with these people, you're not sure what's going to happen. And a lot of the times you just sort of end and it's clear that, uh, it's not going to go anywhere, so to speak. And so, uh, you know, it was very deflating after that because I had won this contest, you know, people were giving me really good responses about this script, but it wasn't amounting to anything. So on one hand, it was deflating, but on the other hand, it was a moment where I knew in my mind, like, okay, I can do this. Whatever doubts I had had about if I was good enough or if I could write a script that was appealing for contests or for producers or managers, I was like, you know what? I can do this. There's no question. I just need to somehow make it happen. And so I was very determined after that. And keep in mind, this came after I had already been in L.A. for more than 10 years at that point. Um, and now it's been 15 years. And so, you know, I was already uh, over 30 by the time this victory came about. And I felt like, all right, it's now or never. I've got to make this happen now. And so my writing became much more prolific. Um, I entered into more contests. I was more proactive in trying to network with people. I was very, um, you know, I would always be in the past a little more hesitant to really talk about my writing, whether it was in person or on social media. You know, after the Alt Alex uh, win, I became much more active on Twitter, um, as well as in some other kind of social, uh, online social groups for writers. And, um, and, the, and most importantly, I just was really trying to write a lot and get my stuff out there, you know, um, but also, you know, try to really improve with each script. With all that said, I still look back at Alt Alex as maybe my best script that I've written. And I know, I know they say you're supposed to get better with every script. And I think to some extent I have, but I also think Alt Alex remains maybe my favorite thing that I've written and maybe the best thing. So 
it's funny with script writing because when you're trying to make it as a writer, you know, you're, you're always moving on to the next thing. And so you've written some cool stuff that just sort of goes into the void, never to be seen again. And most people never get to see what you were working on. And it can be frustrating because, you know, like Alt Alex, I didn't want to just give up on it. Like, yes, I want to keep writing and moving on to the next script, but I knew I had something there with Alt Alex. So I would look for opportunities to still get it out there. I would still use it as my calling card in a lot of ways. And so Coverfly, kind of going full circle now, they had an opportunity to apply for these live read competitions. And I entered with Alt Alex as my script. This was pretty recently. And I don't know all the factors that go into how they how they decide it, but you know, very luckily for me, they picked Alt Alex and it's gonna be read this Friday. And it's weird going back to that script now because it's been a little bit out of my mind. I've been working on other things. Um, but it's very exciting because if, you know, this is the script that if I could choose one script, this is the one that I would want to have this opportunity around. And I'm very excited. I can't wait to see the actors read it. Like I won't see any of the rehearsals or anything like that. So it's going to be brand new to me. It's going to be very nerve wracking, I think. Um, you know, I'm trying to do what I can to sort of invite people to watch a live read. I'm going to... I'm going to try and use that to leverage it as best I can after the fact as well. Um, but yeah, it's very exciting. And fingers crossed, if anything does come out of this, um, then it will have a weird sort of um, serendipity in that, you know, Alt Alex was the script that really got me to another level with my writing. And so it would be very fitting if it then got me to that even higher level. So who knows? It's very possible nothing will come out of this. Um, but again, I mean, look, just the opportunity to have people read the script. I mean, it'll be cool because, again, it's so rare that you write something and anything happens with it, that it comes to life in any way other than you've written it and that's it. So for this to now have this opportunity to come to life in this additional way, it's very, very exciting. And, uh, you know, I'm, again, very much fingers crossed that it goes well. You know, worst case scenario would be that they read it and it exposes some, like, glaring flaw in the script that wasn't obvious to me until it was read out loud by good actors. Um, so hopefully that doesn't happen. But uh, we shall see. So very excited. And yeah, I'm kind of just using this as a plug for, um, for the script. And by the way, I didn't really talk about the plot of Alt Alex. I don't want to give the whole thing away. But it's all about this 20-something girl uh, or woman, uh, I should say, uh, named Alex Fowley, who is a little bit directionless in her life. She's working at Starbucks. She's living at home with her dad. Um, and one day she's suddenly pulled into an alternate universe, uh, where she finds out that in that universe, 
her family, things have gone a little bit differently. In her world, her parents were in a car crash and her mother died and her father lived. In this other world, the reverse happened. Her mother lived and her father died. And her mother had some sinister tendencies. And in this alternate reality, she has used the scientific know-how of she and her late husband, who were sort of pioneers of multiversal research, to form this conglomerate that is raiding other universes and exploiting their resources and has uh, evil, sinister plans to take over the multiverse. And so Alex has been pulled to this other universe by the resistance movement to use her, her, her unique knowledge of her family and of her mother against them in service of the resistance. And so Alex has to make a decision. Is she going to stay and fight or is she going to go back or is she going to just going to do nothing? The classic quarter life crisis dilemma. And meanwhile, her father, who is a long since out of the scientific community, since his wife died, he has to go back to the company that he founded called Quantic Labs. And he has to use his secret map of the multiverse to try and find his missing daughter. So I think people are going to like it. It's a really fun premise. And I'm excited for Friday. If you happen to be listening to this and you're interested in the live screening, let me know. Find me on Twitter at, at Danny Barham and send me a DM and I'll try and get you uh, the link for the live screening. So thank you guys. Um, and we'll see what happens on Friday. But that's what I want to talk about this week. And I'll be back next week with some more traditional picks. But that's all I've got. And I'll see you guys later.